Well, today, as you know, on Remembrance Sunday, we've joined together with our nation to give thanks for those who laid down their lives in war and to pray for those who continue to suffer as the consequences of war. The last century, of course, witnessed two great and terrible world wars with death and suffering on a previously unimaginable scale. The sad reality is that the new millennium has not ushered in an era of peace. As conflict continues today in Afghanistan, in Iraq to name but two of the many ongoing trouble spots in the world and there are many more that never make it to our front pages or into our media. It's been estimated in fact that during the last 4,000 years of human history there have only been around 300 years when a major war has not been taking place in our world. And even in those 300 years there have been continuing conflicts within nations, within communities and within families, even to the present day. All you need to do is switch on your television news every day, open a newspaper and you see evidence of that continuing conflict. So our question this morning is, is there any community, any place where peace prevails, that is a guaranteed peace zone, where people live together in love and harmony? And yes, there should be a place. And that place you should find among the community of people who bear the name of Jesus Christ, who said that his followers would be characterized by the love that they had for one another. But tragically, this is not always the case. It is possible for a local church to be a war zone. And some of us know that, sadly, from experience. Now we may say, well, that's a modern phenomenon. If you go back to the pristine perfection of the early churches, you will find a different state of affairs. But if you think that, you would be wrong. And for evidence, we need only to turn to this little book in the New Testament that we've been studying together in our small groups and also on Sunday mornings. The little book of James in our New Testament. Let me just do a little review as we come to our topic. We've been studying this little book under the title, Faith That Works. For James emphasizes this one supreme fact, that if faith is genuine, it will be seen in works or deeds. There will be evidence in how we live. James says, no deeds, no faith. Or in the key statement in his letter, the end of chapter 2, he says, faith without deeds is dead. And ever practical, James then focus on, focuses practically on what are the contrasts between a dead faith and a living faith. And he begins with two kinds of speech. He says your tongue can either be used constructively, you can speak constructively to praise God and other people, or it can be used destructively to curse people 
And he says, it shouldn't be both. It should be either or. And then he contrasts two kinds of wisdom. End of chapter 3. He says, there's the wisdom that comes from heaven, godly wisdom, which is shown by a good life, the way that you live. But he says there's a contrasting kind of wisdom, which he describes as earthly and spiritual of the devil. And where do you see it? In every evil practice. Should be either or, not both. And then thirdly, as we come towards our topic this morning, he contrasts two kinds of people. He says there are people who are peacemakers, who raise a harvest of righteousness, of right living before God. But in contrast, there are warmongers, people who provoke fights and quarrels. And he says, it's either or, not both. He wants to challenge those of his readers and those of us today who think we can have it both ways. Right back in chapter 1, he spoke about the person who is double-minded. Chapter 3 speaks about the person who speaks with forked tongue, who is double-tongued. So now as he comes to our topic of war and peace in church, he again makes a stark contrast. Now he homes in on where our allegiance lies. Like the sentry at the gate, at time of war, he issues his challenge to his readers and us, and he says, who goes there? Friend or foe? And he says, you can't have it both ways. Chapter 4, verse 4, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. There is no neutral position here. So the question we're going to look at this morning is, and I've looked at and searched my own heart already as every preacher should, is, am I a friend of the world or am I an enemy of God? And to help us answer that, we're going to look more closely at the verses that were read for us by the young people. So if you've got a Bible, it's very important to turn to the Bible. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. If you can't find one, there are ones in the pews. I can see some spare ones around. Just ask someone to wave your hand and someone will pass one to you. And it's page 1215. want to try and gather what we're going to say around, around three little headings, which may help you just to follow where we're going. Okay, here's the first theme. Fighting in church. It sounds strange to say, doesn't it? Fighting in church. But there's no mistake, for James writing to these scattered Christians in these little communities, in house churches, by church I mean, of course, not buildings, they met in homes, Church means people. And he says there is fighting in church. He says there are fights. Look at verse 1. There are fights and quarrels among you. The word translated fight, the Greek word is polemos, from which we get the word polemical. That is the kind of person who is always spoiling for a fight. It's the word used of wars or battles, but it refers to fighting of any kind. Usually physical fighting, but it can be used metaphorically. The word quarrels refers to strife of any kind that is prompted by some kind of dispute. So, for example, uh, 2 Timothy 2, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and says, don't have anything to do 
with foolish and stupid arguments. Why? Because you know that they produce quarrels. Same word. Now, James doesn't tell us here at all about the details of the fights and quarrels. Who said what? Who did what? Who's to blame? That's what we always do, isn't it? Fight and quarrel? Right. Whose fault was it? What did you say? What did you say back? What did he do to you? What did she do to... No, James doesn't do that. Rather like a skillful consultant, he goes behind the symptoms and exposes, as it were, the anatomy of conflict. In fact, of any conflict. And he says, and this is a key point here you need to really grasp in practice and in theory, the key to understanding the external conflict is the internal conflict. There is a war within us. Look at verse 1 again. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your the desires that battle within you? The word translated desires there is the word, Greek word hedone from which we get the word hedonism. This is the philosophy of the pursuit of pleasure as the ultimate good. And the word is nearly always used negatively in the New Testament. It refers to evil desires, illicit desires that, that drag us astray, lead us astray. So, just one example. You remember the parable of the sower that Jesus taught? And some of the seed fell among thorns which choked it up. And Jesus explained later, he said, well, that's like the person whose spiritual progress is choked by life's worries, riches, and here's the same word, henene, pleasures. Luke 8, 14, if you're making notes. So, it's these kind of desires, James says, these kind of desires compete within you. The New Living Translation uh, brings it out quite nicely. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Isn't it the whole army of evil desires within you? He says, every person is a battle zone. And this battle is expressed within you, but the word within you is literally again, within your members. In other words, it's conflict within, which is expressed through your body parts. Like your foot when you kick somebody, or your fist when you hit somebody. Or your eyes when you look at something. Or your tongue when you speak. Uh, in the Bible Speaks Today commentary, one of the ones we've recommended particularly, Alec Matier writes, All our desires and passions are like an armed camp within us, ready at a moment's notice to declare war against anyone who stands in the way of some personal gratification upon which we have set our hearts. And James goes on to describe the, the kind of process that takes place. Very skillful analysis that applies not just to big wars, but to the argument you had with your neighbour last week. Maybe. Now, if you look at verse 2, the NIV translates it with three sentences. Look at it, it says, You want something but don't get it. You kill and cover but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. What you need to bear in mind, some of you will know this, is that when James wrote in Greek, <coughs> in Greek, it was all in capital letters, there were no verse and chapter numbers, of course, these were had many, many years later, but there were also no word breaks either. It's just one continuous thing, so you work out where the breaks all occur. So, a lot of translations translate this as two parallel sentences, and I think that's the correct translation, because it brings out the meaning better. Here's what the Revised Standard Version says. You'll see the point. You desire... And do not have, so you kill. In parallel, you covet, 
cannot obtain, so you fight and wage war. You see the, the process there, the three-stage process? Okay, let's think about it. James says it begins with desire. All conflicts begin with desire. What you want, what you covet, that something else has that someone else has that you want. But he says that those kind of desires, they're doomed to frustration. Why? Because you don't get it. You can't have what you want. So faced with that, what do you do? Well, the third stage is you take action. You kill, you quarrel and fight to get what you desire which you can't or don't have. In other words, the conflict within a person finds expression in outward action by the use of various parts of our bodies with the weapons of the fist or the weapon of the tongue. Now, human history, along with our newspapers, is replete with examples of this. And the Bible, very ruthlessly, honestly, says so too, even with some of the most famous characters. Here's King David. All his troops are at battle, and one day in the evening he looks down from his window, and there's a beautiful woman bathing. And he sees her. What happens? He desires her. But he can't have her. Why? Because she's married to someone else. So what does he do? His frustration leads him to action, which ultimately leads him to murder. You desire, don't have, so you kill. Think of one of the worst kings of Israel, a guy called King Ahab. He owned countless estates and properties, but he set his heart on a little vineyard owned by a guy called Naboth. And he wanted it, he desired it. said to Naboth, I'll buy your vineyard from you. How much do you want? Naboth said, sorry, it belongs to the family. The Lord gave it to us. I don't want to sell it. You desire? Can't have? What does Naboth do? Turns his face to the wall. What we call in my part of the world. He has a juggalit when his wife comes in. And she says, what's wrong, king? He says, I wanted Naboth's vineyard. He won't give it to me. She said, no problem. I'll sort it out. What happens? Naboth is murdered. You desire? Don't have? So you kill James says this is happening in church. Now, it's doubtful, although some scholars think it is the case, that the church members he's writing to actually were killing one another. Sometimes church, churches can get to the point or where people want to anyway. Some people believe that the Christians he wrote to among the members were ex-Jewish zealots who were the kind of, you know, the terrorist rebel group. And when they became Christians, they they carried over their previous practices with them. And, you know, if you had, came to a church meeting like ours in the 22nd, if somebody says something you don't like, you know, bang, that's you out of the way. Right? Any other votes against, you know. Well, <clears throat> I, I suspect that maybe it wasn't happening. But, while you all breathe a sigh of relief and say, I will come to the meeting after all members, Jesus spoke, and there's so many echoes we've seen in, in James of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus spoke about... Murder and anger. Matthew 5, 21, 22. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said <coughs> to the people long ago, do not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to his brother, raka, which means you contemptuous fool, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. But anyone who says you fool... which is a very strong word, meaning you're a worthless person with no hope at all, will be in danger of the fire of hell. We've seen already 
And James has been so blunt. You can use your tongue for character assassination. You can use it, as the kids said, for gossip. For stirring up dissension. So what begins, here's the point coming again. What begins within you finds expression among you. Among Christians within a local church. Now there is a very close connection between the two and we need to pay attention to it. In another commentary which I read regularly uh, by Gordon Keddy, he writes this, and and it's a very important statement this, if righteousness loses (coughs) in the battle within us, then it will soon break out in battles outside us in the fellowship of God's people. Let me put it quite bluntly, and I speak from many years of pastor experience. Find a contentious person in a church, scratch below the surface, you will find there are personal issues in their life that they're wrestling with, and the real issue is not the contention, that's the symptom. The real issue is other issues that are not resolved, and when they're not resolved, it leads to frustration, and then it breaks out in relationship with other people. So when next time that Christian speaks to you in a very harsh and critical way, and you think, where did that come from? The answer is within. Always. So this is this process which takes place in any conflict. And it begins within the heart, within every human heart. So as we come to the end of this first point, I simply ask you, do we take this seriously enough? Do we see the horror of war, especially war in church, through God's eyes? Douglas Moose commentary, which I've referred to and probably is the best detailed commentary on James. It's what he says. With penetrating insight then, James provides us with a powerful analysis of human conflict. Verbal argument, private violence or national conflict, the cause of all of them can be traced back to the wrongful lust to want more than we have, to be envious of and to covet what others have, be it their position or their possessions. So that's our first theme, fighting in church. So, is that just the way things are? Is this normal church life? And yeah, well, that's just the way things are, sadly. Should we just have to live with this? Is there no solution? Well, James says, yes, there is. There is a reason for all this. So he turns to a second theme, which I've entitled, Failing in Prayer. Verses 2, second half of verse 2. Verse 3, James turns, what's the reason, he says, for this frustration that leads to conflict rather than contentment which leads to peace? Look at what he says, verse verse 2 and 3. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. The key lies as always, the solution lies, as always, in our relationship with God. A relationship that is expressed in prayer. As we talk to God. And there are two related problems here. Do you see them? First of all, he says, you do not ask, ask God. James says to these people and to us, he says, in your desire to get what you want... You've missed the first and most basic step. When that desire came into your heart, what's the first thing you should have done? You should have asked God about it. Lord, I really want that thing. Job, house, car, 
person. What do you think about it? But instead, he says, you missed out the very fundamental step. You, you do not have, you, you don't ask God. Despite the fact that, hang on a minute, what were you singing in church the other week? What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Was the hymn writer right? Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because what? We do not. You know the words? Carry. Say it. Everything to God in prayer. You know it. You sing it. But do you do it? Why don't we do it? Well, we've been using a little study book in our small groups and it's been great actually. We've got very positive feedback. Paul Blackham, in the little study guide at the back of it, it's two parts, he says, fighting for our own interests and agendas reveals that we do not have confidence in our Father to supply our real needs. So if you don't have confidence that God will give you what you really need, what do you do? Well, you don't talk to him. You say, I'll go and get it myself. We pursue our own desires. What ends up? Fighting. Conflicts, because somebody else has got what you want. Be it position or possessions. And I simply pause to say here this morning, you may this morning be a frustrated Christian. You're not happy because of what you don't have. And you're frustrated about it. And maybe it's beginning to show itself in your relationship with other Christians. Or with your wife or husband, your children, whatever. And I simply say, is there something you've set your heart on, but you're not prepared to ask God? The fear that he might not give you what you ask for. You can trust God. There are two verses that are very important to me um, that the Lord has used in my life. At two key points in my life, I simply share them with you because it might help someone. Uh, these were the two verses that influenced me, first of all, to join Wycliffe Bible Translation in 1968, and secondly, to take a, what was an even a bigger missionary position uh, by accepting a call to Charlotte Chapel in 1992. <laughs> Uh, these are the two verses, Psalm 37, 4 and 5. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, he will do it. Maybe that's a helpful verse for you to take away this morning. Uh, does that mean then, God will give you whatever you desire? Is prayer a kind of blank checkbook for whatever you want? Well, not at all. The real issue, James says, is not what you want, but why you want it. And James highlights a second related problem. He says you don't have because you don't ask God, but when you do ask God, you ask with the wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Uh, the word spend, again, is an interesting word if you look it up in the, in the New Testament. Again, in one of the parables of Jesus. Remember the parable of the prodigal son who got the family fortune? And he took it off to a far country and he spent everything he had. Like money was going out of business, you know? That's the same word. Recklessly abandoned spending without a thought for the future. Personal fulfillment was the prodigal's goal. 
And personal fulfilment is the motive behind the requests of those that James writes to. And that is why he says you don't get what you ask for, even when you do ask. Now, what, what should they have asked for? Well, James doesn't actually tell us here. He doesn't say what it was they were asking for. But he does tell us, if you read James carefully, what they should have been asking for. Surely the context is clear if you've been with us in these studies. Back in chapter 1 and chapter 3, what should you pray for, first of all? Wisdom. Wisdom is God's wise counsel. We need to ask God for wisdom to pray for the things which please Him to align our desires with His desire. Terry Clark was sharing this yesterday morning with us. So, so often we pray about our circumstances because we think God's going to change them. But what God does actually is aligns our desires with His desires and the circumstances may not change at all. To desire what God desires. In an older commentary, the old IVP commentary, Professor Tusker writes, There is to be sure no prayer that we need to pray so much as the prayer that we may love what God commands and desire what He promises. When you do that, you'll experience contentment. But only if you do that. Otherwise, you'll end up in a conflict situation which will express itself in war with other people, to fights and quarrels among other Christians. An angry person is an unhappy person. So what we need to pray for is wisdom to desire what God desires so that we will be content, not contentious. Content, not contentious. I wonder which one we are this morning. And the good news is, James has already told us, that if you pray for that kind of wisdom, God will definitely give it to you. There's no doubt about it. Chapter 1, verse 5. If any one of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all, without finding fault, and it will be given to him. So the question is, here's your desire. I don't know what you desire this morning. It would be interesting to go around and say, what is it you want? You know, if you could have anything, what would you want? The question is, are you prepared to come to God and say, Lord, you know what I want, but I want what you want. And I'm prepared to totally submit whatever it is you give me, I'll take it. Be it that job or not that job. Be it marriage or singleness. Be it that home, not that home. Whatever it might be. You see, that's where faith comes in. Do we trust God enough to lay down our lives, our plans, our ambitions... Without reservation. Now, if we're half-hearted about it, if we say, well, I'll try it, but if I don't like it, I'm not going to take it. You know, like getting one of these brochures for your holiday. You look at it and think, well, maybe I'm not going to go there after all. You know, some of us want God's will like that. You know, give me a brochure in advance or a video of what it looks like, and then I'll decide if I want it. It's never going to happen. You've got to commit yourself fully. And that's what the verses mean that follow James 1.5. Some of us wrestle with what does he talk about when he says, if you doubt, does it mean if you've got no doubts, you can't have your presence? No, he's talking in the context of wisdom. The condition is single-minded commitment. If you lack wisdom, ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. It will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea tossed here and there. God's will, my will. God's will, my will. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because he's a double-minded man. He wants it both ways. 
He's unstable in all he does. And sadly, that was the case with those that James wrote to. They're causing fights and quarrels in church. They ask God. They don't get what they want. They ask with wrong motives. And they start fighting with one another. And James now comes, and we come to our third and final point. James says, friends, this is a matter of the absolute utmost seriousness. And he uses incredibly emotive language. As he comes to his third theme, fighting in church, failing in prayer... He says there's friendship in crisis here. If you've studied James with us, you know that he, he really identifies with, his, with the people he writes to. He keeps saying, my brothers, my dear brothers. Suddenly he switches and he says, an uncompromising accusation, you adulterous people. Pretty strong language, isn't it? Don't you know what's at stake here? That friendship with the world is hatred towards God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. He accuses them of adultery. Can't be much stronger than that, can you? Not literally, of course. He's not saying there's people in church committing adultery, though there may have been. But he's talking about spiritual adultery. In fact, the word he uses there, you, you adulterous people, it's actually feminine, adulteresses. Not because he's got a down on women but because he's referring back to a constant theme of the Old Testament prophets that picture God's people as a bride, feminine, who were unfaithful to the Lord, her husband. Now James levels the same charge against God's New Testament people. J.B. Phillips' paraphrase highlights it beautifully. You were like unfaithful wives flirting with the glamour of the world and never realizing that to be the world's lover means becoming the enemy of God. You get the point? Don't need to spell it out, do I? There's no middle ground, he says. For, he says, friendship with the world equals enmity with God. You cannot have a foot in both camps. To claim to love the world and also to love God is an impossibility. That's the point. Now, if you look closely, and you're going to have to bear with me a moment before we come to the final conclusion... We come to verse 5, which has been described as one of the most difficult verses in the whole New Testament. And whole forests have been spelled to make paper for scholars to write articles on what it actually means. Uh, part of the problem, if you come to verse 5, it says, or do you think Scripture says? Now, first of all, we don't know what Scripture is referring to because there's no direct quotation from the Old Testament of what he actually says. It may mean Scripture in general. But it's not clear what the next bit means. Uh, the NIV, if you've got the NIV Bible, most of you have, there's a translation there, and at the bottom there's two alternative renderings. All right, let me just briefly explain them, and if you're really interested or can't sleep any night, I'll give you some more material which will really set you off. Uh, but whatever the meaning is, at the heart of it is, James says this is a serious spiritual issue. Look what the actual NIV text says. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? The meaning here, he says, didn't God warn you? You're made in his image. You've got this spirit within you. And it envies intensely. Envy negative because of our fallen nature. It's capable of intense envy. Have you not taken that on board? Or the first footnote gives a second option. Do you think the scripture says without reason that God jealously longs for the spirit he has made us to live in, made to live in us? Here the one who jealously longs is not us, but God. 
And it's not an evil desire of jealousy. He says, don't you know that God passionately, jealously, in the right sense of the word, because it's a neutral word, depending on the context, he says, God is passionately concerned that you're faithful to him. He wants the exclusive love of his wife, with whom he's united in spirit at the deepest level. The third alternative says, or do you think scripture says without reason, that the spirit he caused to live within us passionately longs. Here the word spirit is the Holy Spirit. No capital letters in Greek. So you never know whether it's spirit with a capital or small s. It says God has put the Holy Spirit within you as a Christian. And the Holy Spirit places within you a passionate jealousy for God's honour. So that how can you think about committing a spiritual adultery? Now whatever alternative is correct. And you'll, you'll find a queue of scholars in heaven around James finding out which one of them was right eventually. Uh, the point is surely this. Our allegiance to the Lord is one of the most utmost seriousness. It affects us at the deepest level of our spirit. That's why human adultery is such a terrible thing. And our world trivializes adultery. Ah, it's just a thing, had a fling. The Bible says that when you join to someone... You're united with them at the most deep spiritual level. And when you unite with somebody else, in order to do that, you tear yourself apart spiritually at the deepest possible level. And James says, when you commit spiritual adultery, you're unfaithful to the Lord, and you follow the world in its ways, you are damaging yourself at the most serious, deep spiritual level. It can't be more serious than that. And that's why James uses such emotive language. Why he says, you adulterous people, do you not know what you're doing to yourself and to God? And that is why we should take it seriously too. We must make a choice. You're either a friend of the world or a friend of God. And you can't choose both because God demands your exclusive loyalty and love. He deserves it. He paid for it with the death of his own son. He's given you his Holy Spirit and he demands that you exclusively love him. Passionately. Jealously. And whatever you choose, there is a consequence that follows. We notice the contrast again as we come to the end. The consequence is, but he gives more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, James says, if you choose to be a friend of the world, if you go your own way, proudly in resistance against God, you will experience God's opposition. And if God is your enemy, beware. You may be a person who's gone your own way, you've got all the things that you wanted, and you're still not satisfied, but worst of all is, you are now an enemy of God. Beware. But he says, you're struggling with that issue, that thing that you want, and you, you passionately want it, but you commit it to God, you humbly bow before God and say, Lord, you know my will, but not my will, but yours be done. That's what the Saviour said, in far greater context, I trivialise it, but... He says, you humbly submit to God. And what does God give you? He pours his grace into your life. His love and his favour and his approval. And you say, yeah, I didn't get what I wanted, but I've got God's grace. And God's grace is sufficient to meet my needs. That's enough for me. 
Now, I simply say, you cannot theorize ahead of the point. You cannot say, let me explain some of God's grace and then I'll decide if I really want this. No, what you've got to do is humbly submit to God without doubting. Just say, Lord, I want your wisdom. I want what you want in my life. I lay my life before you and you will experience God's grace, which is sufficient for all your need. A grace that shown to us in the giving of Jesus. For you know, says the Apostle Paul, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he's rich yet for your sakes, he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. It's available to all who humble themselves before God. So this morning, if you're not a Christian, you've lived your life up to this point in rebellion against God, you've gone your own way, you're a frustrated and angry person who doesn't get on well with a lot of other people, you're just living your life your way, God offers his grace to you if you'll humble yourself before him and admit your need and your proudness and bow the knee before him. And if you're a son or daughter this morning with strayed You can experience God's grace when you return from your wanderings and unfaithfulness. Why? Because God welcomes you with open arms like the father running down the road to greet the prodigal. He welcomes you back and he says, I don't deserve anything. Your father says, forget that. Bring the best robe, put it on him, kill the the calf. Let's have a feast, let's celebrate. God doesn't hold bridges. Word of conclusion. Really is conclusion. 900 years before James wrote this letter. A Hebrew prophet named Elijah stood on top of a mountain and threw out a challenge to the people of Israel. They were married to the Lord their God, yet they'd been seduced into following a so-called fertility god called Baal, who offered them glamour, exciting ritual and sex, basically. And his challenge was this to his people, Israel. How long? Will you waver, literally? How long will you limp along between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Stop limping along between two opinions. Someone here this morning maybe needs to make your choice to stop wavering, hobbling along between two opinions. You need to make a choice. And it is the same challenge that James issues here. It's the same challenge between every thing that the same Lord says to us. He calls for a wholehearted response. As you leave this morning, shake hands at the door. I you simply to imagine as you leave this building, that as you say goodbye to whoever's on the door, imagine that the Lord says to you as you leave, who goes there? Friend or foe? When you can answer, you must choose. Let's pray together.